Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, December the 19th, 2023. A uh, little under a month ago on November the 29th, Henry Kissinger died. I think he was 100. Remarkable man, whether you like him or not. I don't think anyone could deny uh, that he was a remarkable man. Of course, his death uh, triggered a number of people to speak about him as a war criminal. The Rolling Stone magazine, never one of his great admirers, had a piece on that. Others have run pieces about the mythology around Kissinger. Uh, the mythology that he himself created, perhaps he even fell for some of it. Um, of course, for many, he'll be most remembered for his carpet bombing of Cambodia, according to the Washington Post. And um, there have also been pieces on, at least in the Atlantic, on his humbling. Uh, his tenure as Secretary of State wasn't always quite as remarkable as it sometimes seems. Yesterday, uh, we did a show with Kishore Mabubani, Singapore-based political scientist, geostrategic analyst, who actually had a lot of good things to say about Kissinger in spite of Kissinger's involvement in the Vietnam War. And another person who has some good things to say about Henry Kissinger is my guest today. Uh, Charles uh, Kupchan is an old friend of the show. He's been on it a couple of times. An interesting piece in the New York Times uh, a couple of days ago entitled, We Forget Henry Kissinger's Effectiveness at Our Peril. Uh, Charles is joining us from his home in Washington, D.C. Charles, um, is the word effectiveness, is that a key word when it comes to a realist like uh, Henry Kissinger? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the general tone of the discussion of Kissinger in the wake of his death was was quite critical. Some of the pieces you just put up on the screen. Uh, and I was motivated. I don't that surprised you. I mean, he, he's a very divisive character. Very divisive character. And he did a lot of bad things uh, during his tenure in office. Uh, but I also think that he was probably the leading statesman of post-World War II America and that it's important to keep that in mind, even though he did uh, perpetrate immoral acts that led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. You know, he, he has blood on his hands, but I also think it's important to keep in mind that he did open the door to China, that he did reset relations with Russia and wind down the very intense Cold War, that he was a key peace broker in the Middle East, that he was someone who understood the importance of keeping America's commitments abroad in sync with its political appetite at home. So I do think that, yes, he there are a lot of blemishes on his record, but he is also someone that I think we should model when it comes to how to build statecraft, think strategically, keep ends and means in sync. In your Times op-ed, you talk about his pragmatic realism and suggest that the U.S. foreign policy now has lost this 
pragmatic realism. What has happened since Kissinger? Why, why is America so uneasy with the kind of pragmatic realism that Kissinger defined and pioneered? Not that, of course, he was the first statesman to use it. He was a great scholar of 19th century European statesmen who, of course, uh, were the, the authentic pragmatic realists. Well, you know, I think that Kissinger may have been the leading proponent and practitioner of what I would call a pragmatic realpolitik, but many other of his colleagues, those that came before and came after, practiced a, a foreign policy that was quite similar. And I would include in that someone like Acheson, who was before Kissinger's time, uh, the George H.W. Bush administration with James Baker as Secretary of State was very much in the same tradition of pragmatic realism. And I think it, it, it was really a function of two things, Andrew. One, the Soviet Union. There was a counterbalance to the United States. And as a consequence, uh, architects of American statecraft aimed at creating a, a stable equilibrium. Uh, and that is one of the lessons that Henry Kissinger took away from his PhD dissertation, which was on the concert of Europe and how the concert preserved a stable equilibrium. And I think the other key ingredient was an, an ideologically moderate center in American political life where Democrats and Republicans came together to support what I would call a mix of power and partnership the use of American power to uh, assert its interests and spread its values through partnerships, through multilateralism. Uh, and I think that that, that, that it really was in some ways the winning formula that kept American statecraft on track, really from 41, Pearl Harbor, right through the administration of Barack Obama. However, I think with the end of the Cold War, number one, America was no longer checked. And I do think we practiced ideological hubris <coughs> after the fall of the Berlin Wall, thinking that we could now spread the uni and universalize Western liberalism. And also the center eroded and Democrats and Republicans really went their separate ways and it's much harder now to conduct American foreign policy because the two parties agree on very little. Where would you politically place Kissinger? Um, you know, some people write about him, Ben Rhodes, for example, as a hypocrite. What did he believe in politically? I mean, I, I get his pragmatic realism, but was that all there was to him? What did he care about? Well, he was clearly someone who cared about power. And he knew how to operate in both the world of academia, the world of public policy, and he knew how to throw his elbows around in the United States government. Uh, and he is someone who was very strategic as well as tactical in building relationships with Nixon. He is, to the best of my knowledge, the only American statesman who served simultaneously as the national security advisor and the secretary of state. He was always looking to guard his 
his access to, to key players. He was extraordinarily temperamental for someone of his stature, always very sensitive to, to criticism. So he's someone who combined, I think, a, a keen strategic mind with a keen ability to operate inside the Beltway. Uh, and even after he left office, after he founded his own consulting firm, Kissinger Associates, he was really at the center of the game, always looked to, to provide advice to Democrats and Republicans alike, feted recently in China, uh, and someone who always was showing up in New York City at the, the highest level of society. So he, he, was a, he was a man about town. We're speaking about Henry Kissinger with, Car, uh, with Charles Kupchan, uh, the author of Isolationism. He works both at the Council of Foreign Relations and at Georgetown University. And he had a very interesting piece in defense, I guess, of uh, Henry Kissinger in The Times. Um, Charles, what is it since Obama that has resulted in this obsession with morality. Why has this taken place, perhaps both on the left and the right, the idea that there's something wrong with pragmatic realism, that it's immoral? Well, I, you know, I think that one can probably trace it to the narrative of American exceptionalism and the idea that the United States is a unique country, uniquely destined to spread liberty and human rights and dignity and a global system that plays by the rules of the enlightenment, law and reason. This is a, a, a kind of anchoring, one could say, myth that goes back to the founding era. It's interesting that American exceptionalism in the 19th century and early 20th century was really about protecting the United States from a dangerous and corrupt world. Perfecting the American experiment at home required detachment from abroad. And then amid World War II, the narrative changes and it really becomes about taking manifest destiny on the road, spreading American values and American institutions, in some cases, through the use of force. Uh, and I think that in the Cold War, that impulse was to some extent checked by the fact that there was a counterweight and by ideological moderation. And after the Cold War, I think that narrative to some extent ran away from us and got us into trouble. Within the 1990s, the Clinton administration believing that it was time to fling open the doors of the West, bring countries into NATO, into the European Union, bring Russia into the G7 and turn it into the G8, bring China into the WTO, uh, and liberalize the international trade system. And lo and behold, in combination with the forever wars that emerged after 9-11, where we naively thought we could turn Iraq, Afghanistan, and other countries in the Middle East into liberal democracies, I think Americans realized we had bitten off more than we can chew. 
And that, in my mind, is in some ways how we got Donald Trump. Donald Trump was a reaction to a primal scream in the American electorate, too much of world, not enough America. What about me? What about us? And then I think we kind of pivoted back to a more traditional foreign policy under Biden, but he too understood the need to focus on the home front. He finished the withdrawal from Afghanistan. I think he was headed toward a foreign policy, what he called a foreign policy for the middle class, that did aim at trying to re-legitimate and to rebuild political support for American engagement abroad, because we had seen the neo-isolationist sentiment surge during the Trump era. Now that we've got two wars blazing, one in Ukraine, one between Israel and Hamas in Gaza, the Biden administration has been forced to kind of go back to being a, a foreign policy presidency. But I do think that beneath the surface, we are seeing a gap open up between America's appetite for engagement abroad and our commitments abroad. We're in the middle of a very divisive debate in Congress about aid to Ukraine, where it looks like Biden is not going to get what he wants, at least until the new year. So it's a it's a bumpy time in, in American politics and in American foreign policy. I do think that we need to get back to the pragmatic realism of the sort that uh, that that Kissinger practiced, where we try to keep our commitments abroad in sync with our political appetite at home, and where we are focused on trying to build an equilibrium of power in the world, not to sustain primacy. And I think the key issue here is, is China. We're going to have to f- figure out how to compete with China, but at the same time, how to do what Kissinger did, open a cooperative relationship with China, because looking ahead, we live in a globalized, interdependent world. We're going to have to find a way to work with China if we're going to tame climate change, nuclear proliferation, global health and pandemics. These are things that the United States cannot solve alone or that the U.S. and its democratic partners cannot solve alone. Yeah, it was another interesting piece uh, op-ed in the Times on uh, Kissinger being right about China. He still is in terms of opening up um, and a, a sort of, I guess, a policy of detente, very much in contrast with the cold warriors in D.C. when it comes to China. What was, uh, I'm curious, um, Charles, what was Kissinger's position on on these endless wars, on post 9-11 America or on the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan? Well, Kissinger, despite his realist roots, did at times pursue policies that were inconsistent with realism that other realists opposed. He doubled down on the Vietnam War initially. As you mentioned, carried out a secret bombing campaign against Cambodia, ostensibly to try to get at Viet Cong and logistical supplies that were in Cambodia, but ended up killing many, many civilians and clearing the way for the murderous regime of the Khmer Rouge. He also supported the invasion of Iraq after nine uh, in the sort of 9-11 era, 
uh, and uh, many realists, myself included, staunchly opposed that war. I do think that Kissinger is somebody who was politically astute. And I'm not sure that he wanted to challenge the George W. Bush administration by opposing the war. Uh, I, I don't know. I never personally talked to him about his support for that war. Uh, but, you know, given the anger that existed after 9-11 on both sides of the aisle, uh, the invasion of Iraq did have the support of, uh, uh, of, of, I would say, most in the foreign policy community. He also initially supported NATO enlargement, a policy that I and other realists opposed because of the potential to provoke Russia. Uh, and uh, Kissinger's views did evolve over time to the point where he openly opposed Ukraine's membership in NATO. Uh, in my mind, that was the right position. Uh, although just uh, before he died, uh, uh, one, one of his last uh, big policy statements was after the Russian invasion in 2022, he called for Ukraine to join NATO. So there's a there's an issue NATO enlargement on which he's on which he's gone back and forth, uh, and I do think Kissinger is someone who was always keen uh, kept a keen eye on where he was locating himself politically, uh, and really didn't want to in in open ways take on the Republican Party of which he was a member. We're talking Henry Kissinger with Charles Kupchan. Um one of Washington, D.C.'s leading thinkers on international politics uh, on the Council of Foreign Relations and at Georgetown University. I want to thank uh, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, for helping bring us such high-quality guests and content. I'm going to run a short feature on Liberties, and then we'll be back with Charles to talk about, uh, to talk about Gaza, Ukraine, Biden, and Blinken. So don't go away, anyone. We're talking U.S. foreign policy. News, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. All our guests, including Charles, are going to get an annual free subscription. So, Charles, let's fast forward to today. When I think of Kissinger and then I think of Anthony Blinken, maybe he still looks rather young. But what lessons might Kissinger offer a Blinken, the US, the current US Secretary of State, who, at least in my mind, is struggling. He's struggling with Ukraine. He's struggling with Gaza, Israel. He, he's not a, a strong Secretary of State, certainly not in a Kissinger sense. Well, you know, I, I would identify several areas where I think a dose of Kissingerian realpolitik is in order. One is that I think the Biden administration came out of the box 
too ideological. Biden tended to talk about our moment as defined by the clash between democracy and autocracy. And Kissinger is someone who believed that the United States did have an important role to play in spreading its values, but that that, that, that goal had to be calibrated by strategic realities and that we had to be pragmatic. And I think the Biden administration has over time learned the lesson that no, we cannot cordon ourselves off from all non-democracies and only work with democratic partners. Uh, and that's, I think, one of the reasons that Biden himself has toned down that narrative. Uh, but I do think that we, that we live in a world in which there is a, a backsliding in progress toward democracy, including here at home. And as we tackle the big challenges of the moment, we're going to have to work across ideological dividing lines, including with China and other non-democracies. Another area where I think that Kissinger's uh, realism is in order is in our core relationship with China. Uh, I do think that Biden has tacked over the last year toward opening a new channel of communication. He met not long ago with Xi Jinping. The national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, has had a number of constructive conversations with Wang Yi, the Chinese foreign minister. So corridors of communication are open, but I do think that Washington has to do a better job of trying to not just limit the, the competition with China, but actually move in the direction of, of looking for ways to work together. Uh, because I do think that there are just too many, too many challenges that require the United States and China to be on the same team. And I also think that will require a leap of the public imagination in this country in the sense that we are headed toward a 21st century that will be multipolar. The United States will not rule the roost. Most economists believe that by the middle of the next decade, China will have the largest economy in the world. Its military will continue to increase in capability. So we're going to be living in a world in which the United States has a peer competitor, and that peer competitor is not going to be a liberal democracy. Uh, and so figuring out what it means to live in a world of pluralism, of ideological tolerance, I think this is something that Kissinger understood and that those in Washington should inherit. And I think in many respects, he got it from the concert of Europe. As I mentioned, that was his dissertation and his first book, A World Restored, where the five powers of Europe decided to disagree about domestic politics. Britain was liberalizing. The other concert members were mostly absolute monarchies, but they said, let's, let's agree to disagree about those issues, put collective interest before our ideological proclivities, and it worked in keeping the peace. 
The polling, but Biden's polling, of course, has been very bad. There was a, a, an interesting poll out earlier this week in terms of disapproval or approval of his handling of the, the current crisis in, in Israel, Gaza. Disapproved 57%, approved 33%. And who do you trust to do a better job on, on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? 38% Biden, 46% Trump. Is Trump theoretically or was Trump more more like Kissinger and his acknowledgement of, of power and realism? You know, I think on, on some level, Trump was more mindful uh, of power realities. And I think Trump was more honest that the United States was spinning its wheels when it came to trying to turn many countries in the Middle East into stable democracies. Uh, he said, you know, this is a fool's errand and I don't want to put good money after, uh, you know, see, see more effort, more lives lost, more billions of dollars go down the drain. And, and he had the courage, I think, to begin to pull the plug uh, particularly in Afghanistan, although it was up to Joe Biden to finish the job, and it was ugly. The departure did not go well, but I think it was it was the right it was the right decision. Um, but I wouldn't call Trump uh, a realist. I think he, in many respects, was more of a neo isolationist, someone who talked about withdrawing from NATO, who talked to uh, allies in Asia. Uh, scolded them for not doing more, threatened the whole question of the American presence in Asia. These are the kinds of moves that upset a stable equilibrium that would lead to uh, renewed geopolitical competition in Europe and Asia, precisely the opposite kinds of ec uh, equilibrium and counterpoise that Kissinger was seeking to preserve as a way of promoting global stability. So I would say that Trump was someone who in some ways was the opposite of Kissinger and that he was a disruptor. He was looking to shake up the system, not to stabilize the system. Uh, I wonder also, Charles, you're a historian of American foreign policy. Uh, Biden is getting particularly low marks on Israel, especially from young voters. Are we back in the 60s? Is the young students, their outrage at the situation in Palestine, is it raising the specter of Vietnam in a way? Well, I think there's a big difference. And that big difference is we don't have boots on the ground. Uh, we don't have them in Ukraine and we don't have them in Israel slash Gaza. We do have aircraft carriers in the vicinity. We are standing up a maritime operation to go after the Houthi efforts to disrupt shipping. But this is not really an American war. It's a war that the United States is supporting militarily with assistance, with military, with arms, with money. But yeah, I do think that what you're seeing here is a little bit of the kind of campus unrest that we saw during the Vietnam War, as we've seen uh, by 
the disruptions that have taken place on major campuses, Harvard, Penn, Columbia, there is a, a narrative about the Israel-Palestine problem that sees Israel as the aggressor, that sees Israel as the problem here, despite the fact that it was Hamas that began this entire tragedy by attacking Israel and killing around 1,200 people and taking 240 so uh, hostages. So it's a it's a very complicated case. I think the narrative on on campuses is one that does tilt the debate toward in favor of the Palestinians. I think Biden is uh, in general on the right course by supporting Israel, but I do think that over time he's going to need to exercise more pressure on Netanyahu to scale down the military operation, to do more, to limit civilian damage, loss of life, to be much more careful in targeting, because we are witnessing an egregious loss of life in Gaza, a disproportionate loss of life. Yes, some collateral damage is uh, unavoidable. Some loss of civilian life is unavoidable when Hamas is co-locating its command posts in hospitals, in schools, building tunnels under hospitals. But I do think that Israel can and must do more to limit the damage that it is doing to innocent civilians. Where's the pragmatic realism, though, in terms of America arming Israel and supporting it so unquestionably? unquestionably. Kissinger, of course, was Jewish, so I'm not sure he came to this subject entirely objectively but um is it conceivable that the, the american relationship with israel could become an issue if if the next election is between trump and biden uh you know i think that that trump was in many respects more pro-israel than biden uh or at least biden before this conflict in the sense that Trump was the one who moved the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Uh, Trump was in general supportive of Netanyahu in ways that uh, Mr. Biden has not been. Mr. Biden was quite outspoken against Netanyahu's judicial reforms, quite outspoken. Really, the, the turn toward more uniform support for the government in Israel was very much a response to the terror attacks uh, that occurred in October. Although interestingly, when President Biden went to Israel early on in this conflict, he did publicly warn Netanyahu, don't make the same mistakes that we did after 9-11. Don't act out of rage and overdo it. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think that Netanyahu has taken that wisdom to heart. Finally, let's end with Ukraine. You've been on the show before talking about Ukraine. You're not shy to talk about the mistake of um, opposing the growth of uh, NATO. You're you're not a, a great fan of uh, of NATO, especially when it came to Ukraine becoming part of NATO. Um, is Zelensky the loser here? Is it is it inevitable that? Um, in the end, the Ukrainians are going to be forced to 
to sue for a piece that they're not going to be happy with? I, I wouldn't say that you that Zelensky's the loser. I, I think Zelensky remains a remarkable leader who has defied all predictions in enabling Ukraine to defend itself against a much larger, more military capable Russia. I do think that Zelensky, the Ukrainian government, is probably going to have to calibrate its war aims to realities on the ground. I think that is a, a, a process that has already begun. Conversations with the Biden administration, with European allies, I'm guessing behind closed doors, are suggesting uh, that the Ukrainians need to focus more on defense, that they need to invest the arms and the money that they're receiving from the West to protect and rebuild the 82% of Ukraine that is still under the control of Kyiv. And that's simply because the Ukrainians did give their best shot to taking back the 18% of their country under Russian occupation. They launched a major offensive. They had what we call a mountain of steel provided by the United States and its allies and they didn't make much progress. And that's because the Russians have built miles of layered defenses, minefields, trenches, tank traps, fortifications. And it was just very difficult for the Ukrainians to break through. It would be hard for any army to break through those kinds of defenses. And so now the Ukrainians are having to confront the question of what next, what do we do now? And this is occurring against the backdrop of a stalemate in Congress about providing more assistance to Ukraine, as well as a difficult debate in Europe about a new approval of sizable aid. I think in the end of the day, both Europe and the United States will come forward I think Biden will get most, if not everything, that he is asking for. And he's asking for a lot, over $60 billion for Ukraine. So I think it, he'll get it once uh, Congress is back in session in the new year. But I do think that uh, we're not looking at a Ukrainian quote-unquote victory. We're probably looking at a frozen conflict, at a war that is not fought at the same levels of intensity that it has been, but that in the end of the day may well require diplomacy to bring the conflict to an end and to decide and uh, on the ultimate disposition of territory. And my own judgment is that Ukraine is more likely to restore territorial integrity at the negotiating table than on the battlefield. And that may need to wait for Putin to be out of office. Uh, and that could be a long time. But I think that outcome, Ukraine's restoration of territorial integrity, is probably not going to occur through a Ukrainian military victory. And that's why sooner or later, I think it will be time to pivot to diplomacy. And let's end, um, let's end Charles, on uh, with technology. I think Kissinger's last book was The Age of AI. And I Human Future, which he wrote with Eric Schmidt uh, and Daniel uh, uh, Hutton Locher. It's an interesting book, actually. And I think the bits that 
Kissinger worked on were particularly strong. Can AI in our age of AI, the age of AI that Kissinger writes about in, in, in this last book, can it help resolve some of these seemingly irresolvable foreign policy problems, overseas problems, territorial problems, the Arab uh, Palestinian, the, the Palestinian Israeli problem, uh, and indeed now the Russian Ukrainian problem. Can AI help or is it irrelevant? We don't know. And that's because we don't know where AI is headed. Uh, I would say for now, AI geopolitically does more harm than good. My, my guess is that the places that it will most contribute to progress is in science, medicine, uh, areas of, of research where AI can come up with solutions rapidly. I think geopolitically, it opens the door to a great deal of uncertainty about weapon systems that are no longer controlled by humans, about disinformation, about more socioeconomic disruption. I mean, look how much automation has disrupted our own societies, taken people's jobs away. AI could triple that effect. So I would say it is more of a disruptor than a source of solution uh, for now. But my final comment would be that it reinforces the, the point that I made earlier about working through the lens of pragmatic realism to figure out a way to work across ideological dividing lines, to do what Kissinger did when he reached out to Beijing. Because we do need a global regime to manage AI, to manage cybersecurity. You know, we don't know what, what we're creating. Uh, and I think it, it behooves the international community to come together, to put heads together, and to regulate and manage and create rules of the road for the operation of AI, because it really could create geopolitical consequences that, that nobody at this point can, can foresee. Uh, this is not something that we can simply say, forget it. it, let's just let technology run its course. We need sober minds to come together to manage this new uh, and uncertain technology.